Remarkably, people are prescribed them long-term all the time. And doctors will say, oh, just take it when you need it. And they are so intensely addictive. They attach in regions of the brain that affect so much of the body. People start having all of these weird side effects. I just call it the stealth epidemic because it's just like making people incredibly sick. You know, we, we hand over so much trust. We can't imagine that that darkness actually exists in our doctor's office. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, today's episode is such a powerful conversation. It's intense, it's emotional, and it's about an issue I honestly had no idea about. And I'm kind of mind blown that this isn't more well known. People are so overwhelmingly aware of the opioid epidemic, but nobody's talking about benzos. And like I talk about in the episode, I especially didn't realize it because I personally don't have any issues with benzos. When they get prescribed to me, I don't really take them. And then I just take them on one-off occasions when I think they might benefit me, like on flights or for photo shoots. So yes, for all my professional photo shoots, I probably have a Valium in my system. And I just had no idea about how much these are overprescribed and how they can honestly just wreck people's lives. And Melissa's story is so haunting, so beautiful. I cannot recommend her book enough. It's engrossing and enriching as a memoir. It has the entertainment factor coupled with the profound things that you will learn about what is happening in our society. I cannot applaud Melissa enough for the work that she's doing, and I really look forward to continuing to follow her journey as well as how this continues to manifest in culture. I'd love to hear from you guys, your own experiences. Feel free to reach out. The show notes will have a full transcript for this. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash night. And by the way, yes, after this, I did read the bonus chapter totally worth it. So I definitely recommend getting that. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you. And I bet there will be a lot on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, the honestly best easiest way to support it is if you can take a brief moment and subscribe and write a brief review on apple Podcasts. it helps so much more than most people realize so thank you so much in advance for that i hope everybody's new year is off to a sparkling start i have so many projects this year i am so excited about so friends get excited because very fun things are coming i have a very exciting announcement friends I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. 
So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MDLogic Health. For that, go to MelanieAvalon.com slash MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this beautiful conversation with Melissa Bond. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. I've just been looking forward to this for so long, ever since reading this incredible book. So here is the backstory on today's conversation. I got pitched by the publisher for a book called Blood Orange Night by Melissa Bond, and it's a memoir. And the topic of interest in the book, in addition to Melissa's life, of course, is the topic of benzodiazepines and their role in being prescribed in society and what they can potentially do to people in society. So I realized, well, A, it just looked completely riveting and fascinating, and I realized that I didn't really know any about that topic. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in today's show, but I feel like people talk more and more about the opioid crisis, but people aren't really talking about benzos. And I know I'll probably talk about this in the interview as well. I mean, I've had a very casual relationship with benzos. Like I've been prescribed Xanax and Valium for, I think after like surgeries or something and didn't really take them or would take them when I say casually, like I would take them as like just a 
helper for like a photo shoot or something. So I didn't have much awareness surrounding all of this. So I was completely excited to read the book. I read the book. Oh my goodness, friends. I cannot recommend enough that everybody get a copy of this. It was riveting. It's haunting. It's a beautiful piece of work, a real page turner. And not only is it about just benzos, but Melissa has so many things that she talks about as far as being a mom and pregnancy and insomnia. And she has a child with Down syndrome and marriage issues and tension and job and the career and all the things. So, so many people will relate on so many levels. So I can't recommend it enough for that. And then on top of that, and I know this is getting like a long intro, but on top of that, after reading it, I actually had a conversation with a friend who I had no idea experienced something really, really, really similar to Melissa. It just made me realize how pervasive I think this is. And I just had no idea. So Melissa, thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you for your beautiful book and the awareness that you're driving. And thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh. That was a fantastic intro. (laughs) So thank you. And yeah, I'm super thrilled to talk with you. I'm just, I've been looking forward to this for so long and I have so many questions and so many directions that I want to go, but well, it's funny. So the first question that I usually ask every guest is tell listeners a little bit about their personal story, but that sort of is the topic of today's episode. I'm curious, when did you decide to write this book? What made you decide to write it and what were you hoping to accomplish in writing it? Oh my gosh. So it's a, it's always such a great question because, you know, it's not like a, it's not, it wasn't a fun thing to write. It was a cathartic thing to write because it's about the most vulnerable kind of awful time of my life. But I, you know, I'd been a writer. I'm I'm one of those people that I've, I've heard the term writing isn't a vocation. It's a, it's a condition. And I feel like I have that condition. I've been a writer since, you know, I was a little kid. I would, my mom has this joke that I would pull back the sheets on my mattress and I would write on the mattress. So it became from very early on, like this way that I sort of kept in touch with the things that were the deepest and most meaningful things inside of me. And so I've been a poet and a journalist and really love fiction, but was never, it was like, I, you know, why would I ever write a memoir? There's so many other things that are more interesting to write about. But then like my life just hit this, you know, the personal, what I call, I joke about it being my personal Fukushima, you know, kind of referencing the like earthquake and the tidal wave and then the nuclear meltdown in Fukushima. And so, you know, in those, those three things I sort of say are like the birth of my son with Down syndrome, insomnia with my second, and then the, the benzo crisis, me being prescribed them, not knowing anything like you were saying, and getting what I call it like a punitive addiction. It wasn't an addiction of craving. It was something that like I was taking per my doctor's prescriptions. And then all of a sudden my body's falling apart. So after I am getting to answer your question. No, I love it. <laughs> but after, you know, like I'm finally healthy and I can like, like walk across a room without falling over. And I got a divorce and I was like, you know, I got to get a job. And the magazine industry had had imploded. And I just kept feeling like I have got to write this story. Like this is the most horrific thing. And I 
every, you know, all the doctors that I had talked with had really not known anything. And I thought there have got to be thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that are going through something similar. And if I don't write about it, because I was looking to see if there were any books and there were a few like really small or self-published, but I thought if I can say, like, if I can help one person not go through the kind of suffering I went through, then it will be worth it. And, you know, and it was also, also cathartic because I was like, what just happened? Like, I just was brought to my knees in a way that I think happens maybe once in everyone's lifetime. And when you are there, it, it's incredible to think that you can ever get back up. So, so in answer to your question, I was just impelled to write it. And I had no job. Like I had divorced. I was living in a friend's house with my two kids, no job, and was like, well, I'll start a Kickstarter <laughs> and I'll fund, I'll like, you know, live on a shoestring and fund the writing of this book. And that's and that's what I did. And it worked. That is incredible. Well, to the comment about helping one person, I know you have at least helped one person because I mentioned my friend. It was crazy. I didn't realize that he, like I said, that he had gone through a really similar situation as you because I ended up telling him all about your book and what had happened with you. And he was like, oh, that's what happened with me. And that's what I was prescribed. And and what's crazy is when I was talking to him, it's when he, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about this, but it's when he was trying to, was he actually on Ativan? Might be Ativan, but he's been on it for years and like 10 years, I think. And he'll every now and then try to go off and instead we'll turn to alcohol and it's just, I mean, it's just a complete wreck. It's a wreck. So I was literally on the phone with him being like, you can't just go off. I was like, you have to take, you have to take the pill. Like, don't, I was, I was like, don't drink the drink, take the pill and we'll find somebody who can help you titrate off, you know, correctly. So I just had no idea that this whole world was existed and was happening to people and people aren't talking about it. Like I said, there's so many TV shows right now about the opioid crisis, but I don't see anything about benzodiazepines. I mean, do you? No, I mean, it's getting better. This all happened to me back in 2010. And back then there was like no discussion whatsoever, even though like almost all of the overdoses that you would like hear about in the media, you know, like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Prince and even like Whitney Houston, all of them in toxicology reports have benzos in there, you know? And so there's a lot of overdose rates are just rising exponentially with like kind of poly drug using because people don't realize that you know, it's like, and f for your listeners, so benzodiazepines, like it's a big, it, it take, took me forever to like get that word down, but <laughs> it's like. Right before this, I was like, benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine. <laughs> it's such a long word. Like they're, they're basically, they're in a family of drugs called sedative hypnotics. And they're, they're like, everybody jokes about like Xanax, the chill pill, you know, and I would see these like Pinterest, you know, pictures of like this happy, you know, it's the original mama's little helper, like of this fifties mom. And it would say like Xanax and coffee breakfast of champions. So everybody thinks that they're really like not a big deal. And I think 
part of that, like what I call that is sort of our cultural lexicon around drugs, you know, because we'll sort of joke about, oh, I'm taking my chill pill. You know, I'm going to take it when I go on an airplane flight. But remarkably, people are prescribed them long term all the time. And doctors will say, oh, just take it when you need it. And they are so intensely addictive. In 2020, the FDA finally was like, okay, let's put a black box warning on them saying these suckers are addictive within the course of a couple of weeks. Like, And when they say addictive, what they mean is you will have such severe withdrawals when you go off. You could either die, you can have a fatal seizure, or you can go psychotic, or you just feel like you've been hit by a bus and like you want to just cry and roll up into a ball and have someone take you out. Like the withdrawals are extremely severe. And and I think, Melanie, like my my take on why there's not as much in the news about it, and this is I talk about this in my book. Opioids are like this fire in the house. Like people, you take them and it's very immediate. They overdose and they stop breathing. And it's a respiratory, it depresses the resp- respiration. Benzos are super stealth because they attach in regions of the brain that affect so much of the body, people start having all of these weird side effects, you know, and they think like, oh my gosh, I think I have multiple sclerosis or I have like some weird GI issue. And so they start going to all these other doctors and their anxiety, either if they haven't had anxiety, anxiety shows up or it increases, insomnia increases. But it's this kind of stealth because you don't realize it's connected with the medication. And so people end up like getting other medications from doctors to treat the effects of the benzos. And so I think, you know, I just call it the stealth epidemic because it's just like hovering, making people incredibly sick and or disabled and they don't realize it's the drugs. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, so many things from that. One, yeah. One thing I was thinking about was, this is kind of morbid, but I don't know where I came across this, but it was something about how if there was like a zombie apocalypse or if something happened where people no longer had access to society and medication and stuff, sorry, this is so morbid, but it was like, who would die first by not having access to their medication? And it was saying that people who need insulin would die first. But it made me think about how I don't think anybody realizes this with benzos that can die. I'm sure that would be somewhere in that list of people who would die. Totally. You would die in the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. From, from not having, you know, the meds. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that was so scary to me. So I, I you know, I'm, I was prescribed two milligrams of Ativan from the get go, which is a really high dose. And And just for some context, like I found out after, you know, I didn't know anything about benzos either. I was a total like smoothie drinking yoga, you know, practicing person and had never really taken medications, certainly not like long-term. I was prescribed them for really, really bad insomnia. You know, the kind where you're just like, just kill me now. So I was prescribed to, and, and the people are given that amount when they have a grand mal seizure in the ER. So that was the context I was trying to give. I ended up going up to six because I would, your body like 
gets acclimated to it so quickly. It's so addictive. And, and six is just an insane amount. And so what I found out was if I had gone off, you know, if I had just thought, you know what, I, I realized that this medication is terrible. I need to go off. If I had gone off the amount of like excitation because of the neurotransmitters that happen in the brain when you take the emergency break off, which is what the benzos do, it would have literally set off a firestorm in my head and it would have been a fatal seizure or I literally would have gone psychotic, which I think is what happens a lot and people end up in the ER and then they just get shot up with more benzos. Do you think, um, I know neither of us are doctors, because like I mentioned this in my intro and you mentioned it, talking about how people in culture like Xanax and Valium have this very, like people take it as like a chill pill. And literally that's how I've been. Like when I've been prescribed it, I don't know if I ever actually would take it for what I needed it, you know, what it was prescribed for, like for the surgery or whatever. I literally just kept it in the cabinet and then it really helps me with photo shoots. Well, I guess my question is, do you think some people with their brain chemistry, it becomes more of an issue or is it about the amount of times you do it or... Because I don't feel any withdrawal from it if I take like one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think one that's, see, I'm not anti medication at all. I mean, I think it's a really powerful drug and it's great for very, very acute like usages. And, and by that, I mean, if you really absolutely, if there's something for which you're going to be super anxious, like either a photo shoot or some people get super anxious going on the plane and you're just going to use it once or, you know, a surgery or something like that. It is so powerful. That thing will take, it takes your system down because it, it does, it does, it's, it's um, one of the great inhibitory drugs. So it like everything in your brain, like just chills you out. So one that's what it's phenomenal for. But if you, because it's so addictive, if you begin using it chronically, and by that, I mean, they say a couple of weeks, but I think you can, if you take it for more than four or five days in a row, I think you will suffer some pretty serious bounce back. And if you take it for a number of weeks or a number of months, then you can have some very intense withdrawals. So, you know, it's like everything, it has to be used. The tool has to be used in the right way. That completely makes sense. I will say though, I've completely, it's like completely changed my perspective on my own relationship with, I guess, pharmaceuticals and just how I see it in culture and just everything. And speaking to this word addiction, because you talk about this in the book about people saying you're addicted, but the difference between addiction versus dependency. I was thinking about it like an analogy. Is it sort of like water versus like Diet Coke or Coke or something? Coca-Cola, not cocaine. As in like when your brain is on those benzos, like it actually needs it like water. And, and people who need water, we don't say we're addicted to water. And yet you would die if you don't have water. And clearly people really need water compared to like Diet Coke or something where you don't have to have that. You won't die without it, but you really crave it. But yeah, just could you talk a little bit about this whole idea of addiction versus dependency? That's a really, really 
That's a really simple and clear description. I really like that because it is true. And I, you know, one of the things that I found when I got involved in the benzo sort of community, because there is a huge community because everyone's like, how did you get off? How did you get off? Because there's, it's so unlike any other drug, you can't do like a 30 day, you know, rapid taper where you're like sweating it out and shivering and like puking on some mattress, you know, and then you're done. Like the brain just does not get off of them that easily. And even if you do get off and you're like, not like having a seizure, you can often have months and months and months of withdrawals because your brain is just freaking out. So when I got involved, I noticed that like there was a huge backlash against any kind of language talking about addiction. While I think that is a really salient point because there's so much shame that's associated still in our culture with addiction, which, you know, now they're using the term substance use disorder, which I think is much kinder and gentler. What I, what I found was, you know, there is a difference because the craving of addiction, which is Leslie Jameson has this great book called the recovering where she talked about her addiction to alcohol as being like this crave, use, repeat. And I was like, oh, that really defines the kind of the addiction of like wanting something, craving that Diet Coke or, you know, Ativan or alcohol or whatever it is. And a dependency, which is you're prescribed something for, you know, some, I have a lot of people get prescribed benzos for insomnia, for restless leg, for grieving. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, if I like stop taking this, I'm like having tremors. I can't walk across a room. I can't breathe. That is a very different kind of addiction. That's where your body is freaking out to the degree you can't function. And so I think it's both important to make a distinction, but to also have like kind of, you know, the overarching conversation that like our language is packed with shame and that shame does not help anybody. And substance use disorder is a real thing. Like it's, it's, it's a response to pain and people try to numb out or, you know, have various reasons that they're doing it. But that also is, you know, people need help and compassion in that arena as well. I love what you, what you talk about, about that with the role of shame in culture. You talk about the ABC segment that you were supposed to have and what happened with that. And then you, you had a whole conversation about basically how drugs are presented in culture. And, you know, the news likes to focus on things like heroin and stuff because that makes us feel safe, which I thought was so interesting. Could you tell listeners a little bit about your experience with ABC? And I have a follow-up question I'm super curious about, but first, just what happened with that? Oh my gosh, it was wild. So yeah, so ABC News with Diane Sawyer contacted me because they'd found my blogs. Like I was just blogging about my experience and you know, I was in the middle of it. So I was, I was really mad. I was really pissed just at the system. You know, it just felt so unfair. And the fact that I was like, wait a minute. So my doctor gave me these drugs to help with insomnia after my second pregnancy. And now like my body is falling apart and I can like barely function and, and, and they don't know how to get me off. And so I'm writing about this and I'm furious. ABC contacts me they're like, hey, would you be willing to like tell your story? You know, the most vulnerable story. And at first they were actually like, will you do a video diary of yourself going off the last five milligrams? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> anguish is not like TV worthy. People just look really sad. <laughs> so, so they come and, you know, it's a different producer. It's this guy, you know, who's like chewing his nails and he's like drinking diet Cokes, like one after the other, after the other. And so they, they film for two full days and they also film this guy who's in the book. His name's Dr. James, but he was my addictionologist, this big seven foot tall guy. He was huge and he helped me get off. And so they interviewed him, I think to make sure like, you know, she just some crazy, like somebody that is, uh, you know, craving and using and, and he gave them kind of the legitimacy of talking about benzos in the medical field. And they're supposed to film it. And it's right before the Olympics in 2014. And so I sit down, I've got like my popcorn. I'm like texting all of my friends. I'm like, we're ready to go. You know, here we go. Okay. There's, there's like a story about Katy Perry and some Chinese, like all opera that's doing the song roar and we're texting back and forth and then they don't air it. And I'm like, what's happening? And a couple days go by and I'm watching and then Philip Seymour Hoffman dies and they know this is one of those things that I reference in the book. His body has benzodiazepines in there. They get the toxicology report. And I was like, wow, they're going to they're gonna say something about it. It's a perfect segue. And all they talked about was heroin. You know, they had, and, and they're like the images, like you've got the needle and then you've got the powder and then you've got like the, the tape, you know, cordoning off the hotel room that he died in. And I was like, wow, we just love the heroin glamour because it's not in our, at least most of us, it's not in our medicine cabinets. It's not like our safe medicine. It's like that street kind of darkness. And we can't imagine that that darkness actually exists in our doctor's office. I mean, that makes so much sense. And I was wondering, because I know it didn't air, but I'm super curious about, because you mentioned the when they wanted you to do the video diaries and everything. I, I actually was laughing during that part of the book because you you did like for a little bit take video diaries, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were like, we need some kind of visual, you know? And so we do like night videos of yourself having insomnia. And so I was like, yeah, what's exciting about watching somebody not sleep? Like, you know, I kept thinking about paranormal activity. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then my, my husband at the time was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be in this thing. So I'm like trying to like position the camera. So it like only gets his leg, you know, it was just, it was ridiculous. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. 
There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. It's so funny. My question about it though is, so say it had aired because you talk about how they did try to make it more dramatic. Do you think that would help or hurt? Say the media took benzos and ran with it. Do you think it would be beneficial if they really did up the drama to make it more, you know, aware? It's, it's, I think it's pro, it probably would have done both. There's not really a way to, for me to know without knowing how they were going to contextualize it. Because one of the things that I talk about is like, I'm not going to be like, I didn't want to just be this like, you know, mama's little helper, like primetime pity sandwich kind of thing. Like I wanted to really illustrate that this is pervasive and deadly and it can happen to anyone. So there's part of me that feels like, well, every little drop is another drop in the bucket of awareness. So even if they dramatize it, they're at least talking about benzos and that there's a real danger. But at the same time, it was not at all the ideal. Like what we're doing now is deep diving into it. And and like Diane Sawyer and, and ABC at that point, they were doing like one and a half to two minute segments. So you really, you just cannot get the real information. So I think it maybe would have been like a half of a drop in a bucket, if anything. Could you tell listeners briefly the journey that led to the actual benzo? Because you start, the initial things you got prescribed was like ambient, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I had had the occasional night of insomnia throughout my life, you know, or like a couple of hours of not sleeping or even a half a night of not sleeping, but nothing really, really devastating. And, and it was bizarre. So I'd had my son and then six months later I got pregnant again, which my body was just like, no. And what I realize now is, you know, I'd also been working as a magazine editor and it was during the recession. So we had a recession, the magazine folded. I found out I was pregnant and I had a six month old with Down syndrome. And so there were all of these like life major life events that happened. Oh, and no small thing. My marriage was a disaster. So I was super just like every part of my identity, you know, like this new motherhood and my identity as a writer was suddenly kind of evaporated. And I was like, oh, I'm like the CEO of the household. And I don't even know how to change a diaper. Like, I I don't know what this, how is this going to work? And I, and upon reflection, like the stress of that 
probably caused the insomnia, but it was so severe. Like I woke up, you know, and they know like physiologically that my adrenals, which are your, you know, they, they secrete your stress hormones. They were secreting really high levels of cortisol at like 9 PM. But this, this we found out way later. And so the stress hormone, which is the like, go, 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 you know, you've got to run. So a tiger is chasing you was coming out at nine o'clock at night. So I put my son to bed, I'm pregnant and boom, I feel this rush in my chest and I am up and awake. And this, and I literally that first night, I, I don't remember sleeping. I mean, I was watching the clock like a hawk and thinking this is impossible. Like, how is it? I can like not fall asleep. And that went on for day after day, after week, after week, maybe getting one or two hours of sleep a night. And you get like, it's, it is like, in you know, advanced enhanced interrogation level like techniques are and I, I looked this up at some point when I was researching the book and I was like the CIA counts 48 hours of no sleep as an enhanced interrogation technique and I was like I would tell anybody anything I would do anything I was like please just hit me over the head with the two by four I will do anything to get sleep and so at the first trimester, and I went to everyone. This is this is in the book as well, but I literally, I was like, okay, I'm covering my bases. I'm going to go to a GP. I'm going to go to a sleep specialist. I'll do the like Western version. I'm going to go see a shaman. I'm going to go see a naturopath. <laughs> like, and everyone was like, yeah, I don't know. Like you're really going through something and you're pregnant. So there's nothing we can do. So they finally gave me, like you said, Ambien because that was deemed at that time safe after the first trimester. And I cold turkeyed that when my daughter was born and that cold turkey was not good for the brain. They, they, that is not recommended at all, but no one had said anything to me. And then three months later, I went in to see who I call Dr. Amazing in the book who ended up prescribing the Ativan. That was the beginning which for listeners, I was telling Melissa this right before, I just realized the copy that I had did not have the bonus chapter where she confronts Dr. Amazing. So I get to read that after this and learn what happened. I'm like dying to know. <laughs> I'm like dying to know. When did they add that? Did you release the book without the chapter and then you added it? Yeah, wait, let's, okay. So when did the, we released the book in 2022 and it went great. And then for the paperback, they, you know, a couple of months ahead of time, they were like, you know, we write an additional chapter. And, you know, at first we were thinking like, oh, is it going to be like, how's my life now? Like, am I stable? And can I keep a full-time job? And, you know, like, am I, am I normal? Or do I still have like really severe impacts, you know, neurologically? And, and I was like, yeah, I could do that, you know, but that's only so interesting so far. And to, you know, to a certain degree, like, yes, it's great to know that like I've regained my health and my, my brain has recalibrated, but I was like, what is the one thing that is left unfinished? And, and I, I, I realized that whenever I would tell people the story or, you know, I would see friends, they were like, does Dr. Amazing know? Like, did you ever tell him? And I thought, oh my gosh, like this guy still practices medicine in my town. And do I have the guts to go into his office with my book and say, hey, you impacted my life in such an extreme way. I wrote a book about it. I'd like you to read it and I'd like us to talk about it. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I can. I was so scared, which is weird in some ways, but it was so like, there was so much PTSD in me about the experience. But I thought, I, you know, this guy's still practicing medicine. And if, if I have the guts to tell him, you know, at least he will know and he can maybe deny it or, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I decided to actually do that and then just write about whatever happened. Oh my goodness. What a teaser. (laughs) I'm like dying right now to know. I'm wondering if it went the way I, I recently confronted it wasn't a doctor, but I confronted a pharmacist about, I, I was pretty sure that the medication I was being prescribed for my thyroid was like off because I'd been on it for so long. And I will tie this back into the topic of conversation, but I told him I felt like it was off and could he test it? He's like, we do our testing. This is right. He's like, you probably just need to change your dose. And I was like, I don't think so. So then I went and did my own testing myself and it was, it was wrong. He was like, you can test it yourself, but it's going to cost this much and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay. So then I left and I, d- <laughs> I did it myself. You actually did it. Yeah. With the lab that he said to do it with. And it was not as expensive as he said it would be. And then I came back in. I was so scared. And I imagine this probably was how you felt going in because I, I went back in with my paperwork of showing that it was off. I was so scared. And he completely talked down to me again and told me that he was basically like, I think we just need to change your dose. I was like, we need to change my dose. Oh my gosh. And you've got the lab results. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was actually a really beneficial experience because it just made me realize how much you really have to just take agency with your health and your relationship with doctors. And there are wonderful doctors out there and wonderful pharmacists, but there's also people who are not wonderful and you really just have to take agency. And and that's what you did with your journey. So that's why I'm just, you know, so grateful for everything that you're doing. Oh, and that's a huge topic because, you know, we, we hand over so much trust and we really sort of give ourselves over to these experts, you know, that are, are, you know, have taken the Hippocratic oath and we think are doing everything in our best interests. But the, you know, there are so many factors that go into a doctor or a pharmacist being a really good practitioner. One of them is continue their continuing education because there's so many medications that come out. One of them is their own hubris, you know, like they're thinking that they really know everything and not ever having the humility of saying like, huh, this patient is telling me something's not working. Let me look into that, you know? And then also just the, the, the impacts of the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry and the human element. There are so many things that create cracks in this, our healthcare system that I think doing what you did is so important, being an advocate for yourself, taking agency, asking the questions and not putting them on a pedestal because they are human and they know a lot, but they don't know everything. I could not agree more. And and what makes it further complicated is like when you first meet Dr. Amazing in the book, like he seems like he really, really gets what's going on. It's not always black and white in that it's obvious or not as to whether a practitioner is making the right decisions with your health care. It's just so confusing for people. 
And there's so much that we're like, uh, this happened to me just the other day. This is crazy. So, and, and you read this in the original, you know, the first version, the hardback of Blood Orange Night, we end up finding that I have what's called a PFO. It's just a, a hole in my heart between the, the atria and the ventricle. I ended up having two strokes and a lot of people have these. I went to see my card to see a cardiologist, new cardiologist recently because my old one like left because I have to take blood thinners as part of, you know, they tried to patch the whole, the whole went through the whole surgery and it didn't work. And so I go to see this, this cardiologist and she's like, Oh, I think you need to be on statins. A lot of people are on statins probably out there. And I was like, I think you're wrong. <laughs> and she's like, oh no, you're, 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 this cholesterol needs to be at this level. And so I went back and talked with another doctor friend of mine and, you know, did a bunch of research. And I was like, you know what? Now I do a ton of research. I'd always been a big researcher, but what I, what I realize is when you're really, really sick, you kind of hand over a lot more of your agency over because so sick. But, you know, at this point I was like, I felt so great about my decision. I was like, guess what? You're crazy. I am not taking statins for the life of me because my blood work is phenomenal. But anyway, that's kind of a side note, but it like stuff like that happens all the time. And I think if we don't have that agency, we can end up taking something that can cause us much greater harm than we would ever imagine. I could not agree more. So did you take the hole in your heart part out of the paperback? No, no, that's in there. It's like, uh, it's called metaphor of the holes. I think it's the chapter. Okay. So when you're, okay. Cause you were saying the hardback copy, I was thinking it was just in the hardback copy, but it's in both. No, it's in both. Yeah. Okay. Did you make any edits for the paperback? Yeah, no edits at all. Just added the final chapter, the big, like <laughs> the big confrontation. I know that I get to read after this. I'm so excited. Where are you now with your dosage? So the timing of us recording this is really interesting because, so I've been at five milligrams of Valium. That's what I was able to get down to. My withdrawals just got too severe. Like I was, I was literally, they call it like a, a, a water titration. You like crush up the pill and you do like, you crush it into water and you start doing like, just like little, like I'll do like 0.1 milliliters off, you know, of the Valium. And I was, I think because, you know, my marriage was really like at a point of where it was ending. It'd been incredibly stressful for years, but it was just kind of devastating. And my son, whom we had put in daycare while I was doing the withdrawal for, we'd, he was in daycare for about six months, which gave me a really good head start. Like those were six months of very acute withdrawals. And if he hadn't been in daycare and my daughter as well, it just, I don't think I would have been successful, but he got kicked out of daycare because he's, he's got down syndrome, but he's also got autism and they, you know, kiddos with autism are just a room full of 30 kids will take anybody to the brink. And if you've got autism, like he just couldn't handle it. So I ended up going home and I just couldn't get further on my dosage. So I've been at five milligrams for a decade now. And starting January, I am going to begin tapering those last five. Like, I feel like my brain has recovered enough that I can make another attempt at the last five. Wow. 
Oh my goodness. Scared. I'm really, really scared. Because I know in the book, when you were doing a lot of your tapering, you went and stayed with friends. Are you going to have to do anything like that? I mean, the reason I did that, there were a couple of reasons. And and it was such a good recommendation. I had this guy that was a social worker and a Tibetan Lama, of all things, recommend that I stay with friends. And it was basically, he said, this is going to be the worst thing you've ever gone through. This is like so far and above any other kind of withdrawal in terms of the duration and the severity. And he said, you are going to need to be able to just curl into a ball, you know, and like rock or do whatever, vomit, whatever, you know, and he said for a long time. And you want to be able to do that and not, you know, feel responsible for like somehow holding it together for the kids. And you're going to want to protect your kids and your husband. I didn't want them to see that. Like I wanted to structure it in such a way so that I would see them before daycare, after daycare. And then I would, I would be able to kind of manage the time frame of my withdrawals and do things to mitigate them. So when I would see them, I was the best mom I could be. And then I knew that they were taken care of throughout the day. They are now old enough to make their own ramen and get themselves ready for school. And my daughter is old enough for us to have a discussion about it. So I'm setting up a lot of support for them, but I think the emotional impact will not be as intense as it would be if, you know, they were like two and three or, you know, so they don't need me as much basically. And they have an intellectual understanding. At least my daughter does. I'm still setting up like a lot of support, you know? So if I have to like curl into a ball for a number of days or weeks, but I'm going to do it in such a way, hopefully that I can be functional because I do have a day job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I really, I really don't know what's going to happen. Is there any way to titrate at such a tiny, tiny, tiny amount that you don't get symptoms or is it inevitable? And I think, so what you've talked about is like the best guess a lot of us have in the benzo community or even the medical community. It's like, okay, can you just go so, like we, I call it like the, the turtle slow taper where maybe it'll take two or three years. And that is an option. That is one of the things they recommend. Weirdly, the, the addictionologist I worked with when I first was tapering. When I got to five milligrams, he was like, I'm fine with you holding here. It's not going to impact your body the way 60 milligrams was impacting your body of Valium. But he said, I think when you go off, he was like, I actually remember, I recommend you, you just jump off, go from five to zero. And he said, cause it's going to suck either way. So I think in saying all of that, we don't really know. I'm going to try to do it in a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I've been like taking all of these micronutrients and I've been doing all of this stuff to like get my brain health as ready as possible, you know, for the hit. And I think, you know, I don't have a lot of the stressors that I had back then. So I think it's possible for my brain to be able to recover more effectively. And I'm also experimenting with something which I'm, I'm going to leave off right now because it is going to be hopefully a second book <laughs> if it works. We'll see if it works. It's an experiment, but it's something that I think if it works, it could really 
I have the hope that it could help other people because the hard thing is that it's such a long, such a long withdrawal process. And you're so like slammed for so long. You, you end up like losing, you can't work, you can't take care of your kids. And I was like, there's gotta be a better way. So I'm going to try a way that may be better. I want to give you all the biohacking things. Yes. Please give me all the <laughs> I haven't specifically researched them with benzos specifically, but there are so many things in this biohacking sphere about for the brain, technologies, supplements, practices. I bet I bet a lot of them could probably help. Well, we'll we'll have to talk. I mean, I I've been working with the ones I know, but there's there's it's such a huge field. I would love to tap into your brain there. I keep going back to that story about my friend, but it was shocking because he had never told anybody, I don't think, except for his wife, about all of this. And she, um, I don't think she quite understands all of it. And so when he told me about it, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I was like, you don't understand. I literally just read a book about what you're going through. Like, <laughs> exactly. And he was saying that with his issue with titrating off completely was that he was able to get down to a certain amount but then he really needed a doctor. And it's what you talked about in the book to prescribe like another drug as well to help with the taper. Which one were they saying that it paired with to make it easier? Well, so we are so far behind the times in terms of any kind of research in that will help people get off. Like we really, we don't know a lot. And so I, I'm going to say that that's part of why I'm doing this experiment on myself. What I used the withdrawals can be so severe that you like for me and everybody has a different constellation. There's so many possible withdrawal symptoms. It's, it's unbelievable. And they're weird. Sometimes they're weird. Like I had one, the ashtray smells for you, ashtray smells and the, like my vision going black because there are a lot of neurotransmitters connected in the, in the retina. And so I was driving my kids one day and my, my vision went black. I was completely conscious totally aware. And it was like my, something happened with the lens of my eye. I don't know what it was, but my vision literally went black, like a film noir, like fade to black. And I'm driving with my kids in the back. So that's like not a great withdrawal and symptom and not something that I would have thought about was a benzodiazepine. So to, you know, to get back to the drugs that they ended up using for me, that only happened once, but the insomnia and my doctor prescribed trazodone, which a lot of people will be familiar with to help me sleep, but then also a very low dose of an atypical antipsychotic called Seroquel. And in low doses, it causes a lot of sedation. And so you know, I had this whole conversation with Dr. James and I was like, look, I don't want to go on another drug to get off this drug. And he was like, I know it sucks. It's, it's insane that we have to do this. But he was like, these drugs are so, we don't know really what they do in the brain. And you're basically trading a lesser evil to get off of this evil. And then you'll taper off of the Seroquel and the Trazodone. So I don't know. I think that's used quite often. And there are other, like their muscle relaxants, like literally like a lot of doctors are just like, I don't know, let's try this, you know. 
Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. That's what my friend was saying. He was saying that I'm assuming when you dive into the whole this whole world on the internet that you probably see the similar protocols and such. Because he was saying that he was trying to find a doctor that would work with him and prescribe the other drugs he needed to get off of this drug. He was saying that normally they just want to put him on SSRIs instead. He's like, no, I guess he had that experience and that was awful for him. It's just, like I said, it's just so eye-opening and shocking to me that this is so pervasive. And and I feel like there should be like a protocol if like, if this is such a thing, you know, <laughs> like the industry should be um, tackling this more with more agency. Right. And, you know, I think they're starting to, I think it's, you know, part of it is research dollars, like who's going to fund doing research into, in a, into a withdrawal that is like, so long, you know, some people it takes two years, it took me a year and a half to get from 60 milligrams of Valium to five. And that is a long time. <laughs> but I think also as they're starting to realize how pervasive it is, like people are being taken out of the workforce. I can't even tell you the number of emails that I've gotten all over the world. Like I was just recently on a podcast of this sweetheart guy in the Netherlands who's a social worker and ended up having Lyme disease and then that got treated and he had tinnitus, the ringing in your ears and he couldn't sleep. So they put him on benzos. He just got horrible medical advice. They cold tapered him and he had a stroke and a heart attack and like all of this stuff that happened. And so, you know, in saying that, like it's it's an American issue, but it's a, also a global issue. And 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 I think I know in the UK they've done the most research, and a lot of people do use what's called the Ashton Manual. But I mean, this was a woman that she was doing this research like thirty years ago, and we really haven't added a whole lot to that. Like there needs to be a lot more research. It'd be crazy if they created a drug that helped you get off of other drugs, but then that marketing would probably shoot themselves in the foot because <laughs> if they're like, we're making this drug so that you cannot take this other drug, it would have to be a completely different pharmaceutical company that made that one if they're making the original one. Right. I mean, it's kind of like methadone, you know, like, oh, you can you can take this and this is like state sponsored, but you're still addicted to that. Like, this is what's so crazy, Melanie's like, this is a total tangent, but you said I could tangent. <laughs> oh, I love tangents. I love tangents. 
So back when I was, you know, when I was being a journalist, I got this great assignment to interview this guy who was this beautiful violinist, but he was a, he was a homeless guy, but no, not a violinist, a cellist. And he would play theaters outside. Like, so you would, you would go see a great movie or you would go see like a great, you know, symphony or something like that. And you would come out and there would be this guy that was just in this tattered brown jacket with like very few teeth and looking really hunched, but just a maestro on the cello just incredible. And so this editor was like, I want you to figure out who this guy is and interview him. And so I went and found him. He was, he was living behind this like violin making studio. He had wanted to be a violinist and make violins. You know, he was, he was a cellist and he'd like studied in the, some like, uh, overseas at some Philharmonic and then got hooked, came back here and got hooked on crack I remember the first time I saw him, it was at the violin making studio. And I was like, hey, I'm a journalist. You know, I'd like to do an article on you. Are you up? You know, how do you feel about that? And he was like, he's like, okay, well, that's great. Will you just take me to the methadone clinic first and then we can talk? <laughs> I was like, sure. And I was like, this is so crazy because he was like, I've got to get my head of methadone. And I was like, wow, state sponsored like addiction, like it's all over the place. So he ended up dying of an overdose. And he was, he was just a sweetheart and it was heartbreaking because he was so talented. But I was like, wow, you know, he traded one for another. And is that better? That's crazy. And did you publish the piece? Oh yeah, I did. It was, it was a long time ago. It was in my twenties when I was like this, you know, like, (laughs) and it was in a local like magazine in Salt Lake city, but yeah, his name was, was Ellie. I remember he's a sweetheart. Oh my goodness. I love it. And speaking of your, your writing history, this is a super random question. I, I just have to know, I noticed a big motif with birds in the book. You are the first person to say that, Melanie. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Yes. Oh, I was like, there's a lot of birds. And I was like, even Finch, that name is a bird. Chloe's not a bird though. Chloe's not a bird. No, that was intentional. I realized as I was going through withdrawal, one of the things that I had to do to keep myself from just totally spiraling into the dark and feeling sorry for myself was like, I have got to keep my head up and every day look for things that are beautiful. Like, what can I do to feed my soul? Because it feels so dark and my body hurts all the time. And I like want to glock myself every other day. And so I would, everything that I saw, I would be like, oh, that's so beautiful. And I would look and it, it was in particular, like watching sparrows in the sky, like them do their little, no swallows, them do their little swallow dance. And it became for me this like symbol of the freedom I was looking for and the health and like regaining that sense of freedom in my body. And I can't even tell you how excited I am that you picked up on that. Oh, yay. No, I was like, is this going to be weird if I ask this? But it was just so pervasive throughout the book. So I figured it meant something to you. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. My other writing question, I'm curious... What was the hardest part of the book to write? I'm wondering things like, because you're you're very vulnerable in the book and you even share moments, and we haven't talked about this yet on the show, but 
your role as a mother and feeling like a failure or a wife failure. And, and you even talk about when you have Chloe, it takes a while for you to develop feelings of love for her. I was wondering what was the hardest thing to write? And and like for some of it, do you, do you wonder about what your kids reading it someday, what they'll think? Just what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Chloe has not read it. She she's 14 and she could read it, but she's like, I know your life story already. <laughs> you know, so she's like, <laughs> however, she wants to do like, she wants to present it in her class, <laughs> like a book report. And I was like, really? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> she's like, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to tell them it's you. And I was like, okay. But she's, yeah. So I think honestly, the hardest thing, like it was actually, you know, it was vulnerable, like writing about the kids and writing about like Chloe being so, so colicky, you know, the first three months, I was just like, I'm just trying to survive. I don't even know if I like this kid. Like she just screams all the time, you know? And then like when, like then, then like the moment where I fell in love with her and just like how incredible that was. But the hardest part, to be honest, was my relationship with my ex-husband was so difficult. And I really, in the book, wanted to portray him to be able to see from his perspective as much as I could. And at the same time, be really honest to what I experienced And so I thought through it over and over again, like, am I viewing it from somebody who like from the outside, he's watching this woman that he married suddenly turn into a complete wreck and not have anything really that, that either of us could point to. Like I would describe it as like, okay, you get cancer. There's like their test results. You can say, okay, here's the offending tumor. Here's the x-ray that shows it. Here are the tests we have to do. This is the protocol that we're going to do to get you better. And here are your chances for success. But there was so little that was known at that time. And all he saw was me just turning into this like ghost of myself and being angry and being exhausted all of the time. And how I tried to really like feel into like how hard and scary and weird and frustrating that would have been for him. And at the same time, me feeling on the inside, like I've, you know, I have lost the only support really that I have. And he is completely turned off emotionally. So to try to portray both of those sides in a way that was authentic and and honest was the hardest. I can comment on that to say that I think you really accomplished that goal. The way I felt as a reader, not knowing either of you and not you know, having witnessed any of the actual situation when it was occurring was that I could feel your characters, like feeling a lack of support and frustration from your husband at the time and how hard it probably was from your perspective. And also you made it very obvious and evident that what he was going through as far as what with your actions and everything. And so the whole thing, it just felt sad. Like it just felt like sad. (laughs) Like this is the way it is and it's probably not going to get better. Right. And you know, some people, people react to trauma differently. And what we were going through was really traumatic. And his 
reaction, you know, some people are like, I'm going to take action. I'm they're try, They try to fix it or their helpers. His reaction was just to completely shut down. That was his trauma response. And it was unfortunately like the worst possible thing for me because I felt so left alone with all of it, you know, and he was just angry all of the time. And, you know, there were, there were things that happened that like to this day, I'm like, wow, I can't even believe it, but I, I get it because it's a trauma response, but I still can't believe it, <laughs> you know? And it's, it was sad because for him, like it was just, he just couldn't cope. He couldn't, he got stuck and he just shut down and it sucked. <laughs> the story is funny though. <laughs> Oh, Melanie, I was just like, I don't want, I don't want your listeners to think that it's all just one long story because <laughs> there's a lot of humor. No, there really is. And I was laughing out loud during some of it. And there are moments like the Christmas moment after, after the TV segment that was bittersweet, I suppose. You say in the book that the worst thing that people could say to you was, I'm sorry, you say that at some point. And then you also say at one point that one of the most difficult questions you get asked is, how are you? Like, what is the worst thing people could say to you today about everything? Is it still, I'm sorry? So let me give a little context around that one. So the, the I'm sorry one was when my son was born. And, you know, we're, we're, the scene is like my husband at the time and I are calling our close friends and family and giving them the diagnosis. Like, wow, we thought we were going to have a kid who was neurotypical, but guess what? We got a kid with Down syndrome and we were trying to just like digest that. And like, what does that mean? And I'd never even met anyone with Down syndrome. So I was like, how am I going to take care of him? What is his prognosis? How functional is he going to be? What does this mean for our lives? And I had a friend that was like, I'm really sorry. And it felt like this, I'm sorry, meant like my son was broken. And in that moment, I was so in love with him. I mean, I feel it in my heart as I'm talking about it. I was so in love with him. It did not matter to me what diagnosis he had. I was like, I would do everything for him. And to feel that comment as though he was broken was like broke my heart. So that that's the context around that one. And then the, how are you? What that speaks to, to me is like a level of like authenticity that is either present or not, because we'll, we'll oftentimes like say, Oh, how are you doing? And it's kind of like, it's almost like knuckle bumping, you know, you don't really expect an answer, like an authentic answer, or sometimes it's more like a, Hey, I see you. But I remember I was so acutely sick and I knew people didn't really want to hear about it, <laughs> you know, and I just didn't even know how to answer because I didn't want to be inauthentic, but I also was so devastated and sick every day. I didn't know how to say like, I'm, I'm holding on for dear life right now. How are you? You know, like I didn't know how to answer. So now, I mean, now that I'm healthy, I, you know, I realize it's just one of our cultural things, but I think it gave me a really acute awareness of, you know, 
the fact that we never know what people are really going through in their in their lives and the presence that we have with people is really important and even those small questions you know to like how present can i be when i ask those questions that are just like these social throwaways you know i love that and i've actually since reading that when people ask me that it's it's made me reframe it cuz i'm like oh And it's like, how do you answer it? Because like you said, it sort of is on the one hand, just an acknowledgement, like people don't really expect an answer, authentic answer. And sometimes you don't want to, you know, provide all of that. It's a really fascinating question that we ask each other for sure. Yeah. And I, I try to like every day, like when people ask me that, like I try to give an authentic, but like not an overshare, you know, I'll be like, wow, I, I think like, and I'll just really get in my body. I'll be like, well, I just had a half a cup of coffee. So I'm feeling really jacked right now. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I love it. I like saying if I'm not doing well, I like saying I'm surviving because I feel like that kind of captures everything without saying too much and without being like melodramatic sounding. Yeah. And that's, and everybody gets that too. Like, oh yeah, I feel you. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on from the book? I mean, there's just so much there. I can't recommend enough that listeners read it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to say is that like, you know, yeah, it's a book about drugs. It's a book about relationships, you know, and parenting and marriage and, you know, addiction and dependency and language. But I think more than anything for me, what it feels like is it's a book about one you know, we all have those times in our lives when when it's a real turning point, when you are devastated by something. It's a, some kind of trauma, whether it's an illness or a loss or, you know, grieving or, you know, who knows, a tragedy of some kind. And we don't know if we can pick ourselves back up again. 
And I kept thinking about the book in that way. Like it's both for me a way to like, you know, move education out there about benzodiazepines in particular, but in general, it is about this life we have, you know, that the Buddha has, has said it is a life of suffering. And the more we sort of cling to that or cling to trying to not have it be suffering, the more we suffer. And so for me, it was an exploration of like, wow, I made it through that. How did I do that? And how do other people do that? Like, you know, when, when we are brought to our knees, what happens inside of us that helps us pick ourselves back up again? So that's kind of what I learned through the whole thing. It's just the power of the human spirit. If you could wave a magic wand and not have gone through all of that, would you choose that? You have such good questions. I can only answer this in retrospect. (laughs) I, gosh, I don't think I've ever said this out loud. I don't think I would change it. Part of it is because I am healthy, but part of it is because it was such a dark night of the soul and so much has changed for me as a result of that. I think because I confronted it, like I was full frontal. I was like, I am not losing this. I am going to like get off these things if it kills me. And that process built a muscle in me I didn't know I had. And for that, I'm grateful. One last question. While you were going through that, did you think someday I'll be grateful for this? Or were you just like, I got to get out of this? I did not have any idea. No, I was literally like crawling through the mud every day. And I, and I would ask myself, I was like, wow, why am I, why am I working so hard? But there was just something in me that would not let go. But I didn't, I didn't know if I would even make it. So there was no sense of, of future. There was just like, I've got to crawl through each day. And then tomorrow I'm going to crawl through each day. Well, I'm so glad you kept crawling. (laughs) Me too. I'm so glad you're here now. And I don't want to say I'm excited for you. How do I feel about your upcoming journey of titrating again? Well, I'm going to say, for me, if we discover something, working with this functional medicine and addiction doctor, if we discover something that really will change and and help people get off without suffering so intently. I'm really doing it for that. Like I because I could do like a 5 year micro taper. And and I feel I feel scared a little bit, but I also feel like I don't know. I have a lot more I have a lot of resources right now and it just I'm going into it consciously and and by choice. So it's not going to be fun for sure, but I'm not fighting for my life this time. Well, I think I am excited for you then. (laughs) Yes, let's be excited. Awesome. Well, Melissa, thank you so much. This has been so incredible. Yeah, just from the moment I started reading your book, I was so excited to talk to you about all of this. And I can't thank you enough for what you're doing, sharing all of this and raising awareness and being so vulnerable and open. And you're changing so many lives that... I'm sure you'll never see. So um, just thank you from the bottom of my heart. And how can people best get your book, follow your work, all of the things? 
Oh, so yeah. So all of the things. So getting my book is really easy. I mean, you can go to your local bookstore, you can go to Amazon. It's, it's, mostly everywhere unless you're in, it's a really small bookstore somewhere the audible edition i'm gonna i'm gonna like toot my own horn here the audible edition the new york times picked it as their one of their favorites for 2022 and to me this is like the this it was really meaningful to me because i fought i didn't fought well i yeah i fought to be the person to read it oh yeah they wouldn't let me narrate mine so yeah they were like I first said, hey, can I, can I, I really want to narrate my own book. And they were like, oh, that's so sweet. No, we have professionals. <laughs> we're going to do that. And I was like, no, 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 really. I really think that it's the right thing for me to narrate it. And then somehow, like, as we went through the process, they were like, oh yeah, you're going to narrate it. And I, maybe because it's so deeply personal, I don't know, but it just worked. And so if you like listening, it's, you know, it's me, but I, I mean, I, I'm feeling it all the way through. So I recommend that. And then my website is melissaabond.com. You can buy it through there. And then I'm on Instagram at Melissa B. Author. So those are all of my big handles. Awesome. I'm glad you brought up the Audible because I did want to comment on that because I listened to the Audible and I love it when authors narrate their own book and you did a fantastic job. Thank you. I can't believe we didn't let you do it. Like there's an intro chapter, so they let me do that. And then they had their narrator after that. <laughs> so in their defense, it was, I didn't even have my podcast yet. So I didn't have a voice, like a well-known voice yet. Um, I think it would be different if I did it now. And I also was like very overwhelmed and exhausted at the time. So when they were like, you can do the intro, I was like, actually, that's kind of best of both worlds. Because <laughs> it's a lot to narrate. It's hours of standing there. Yeah. How many days did it take you? I think we did it in like four or five days. It's a journey for sure. It probably was really a journey for you being, you know, so personal, like reliving all of that. Well, yeah, I cried a couple of times. Like I, they had to stop and I was like, just give me a second, you know, like just, you know, reading about my kids and there are just moments in there that I still like choke me up. Yeah, I bet. Oh, and that's incredible about the New York Times. Congratulations. That's amazing. I know. I was so psyched. That's amazing. Well, thank you again, Melissa. So for listeners, we'll put links to everything in the show notes. I'm sending all of the love and all of the good vibes for January. And hopefully hopefully that goes beautifully. And I'm looking forward to your next book. You'll have to come back if you're open to it for the for the next one. Are you kidding? You've asked some of the best questions. It has been a delight, honestly. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, and that may, oh my gosh, I forgot <laughs> the last question that I ask every single guest on this show because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I mean, it's funny. I have the gratitude practice at night where I go through what I'm grateful for as I'm falling asleep. But right now I'm grateful for you. This has been such a beautiful interview and your questions are so deep and thoughtful. And the fact that you're doing this work on a you know big podcast, I'm, I'm right now feeling super grateful for you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, it's completely mutual. I as well, I'm so grateful for what you're doing. Like I said, I just feel like I had no idea, no idea until I read your book. This has honestly become something now that I'm really passionate about sharing with people. So thank you so, so much for what you're doing. I look forward to talking to you more in the future. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Melissa. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.